everyone. Welcome to the fourth episode of Reggie's Comic Stories. My name is Reggie. These are comic stories, uh, bits about the industry or about comics or certain creators that uh, would kind of fall outside of the Cosmic Treadmill purview as we usually try to keep some kind of a narrative going in those episodes. So uh, this is something we can do every other week. I'm here every other Wednesday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or you can find it on Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, iHeartRadio, all the rest of that good stuff. Uh, I want to apologize right at the beginning. I know my voice sounds a little bit thin. I am getting over a cold, uh, and it's kind of settled into this poor voice for the last week or so. Uh, I don't know why it's kind of lingering so long. I feel fine, but I just have this uh, dusky-sounding voice. I hope you can bear with me. It's not too bad, uh, but, you know... We do have a kind of gritty subject today for this episode of Comic Stories. It's about Bob Wood, one of the co-creators of Crime Does Not Pay, a comic book that ran in the 40s and into the early 50s, and uh, his salacious life and his uh, untimely end. So uh, we'll just jump right in. Bob Wood was born in Boston, Massachusetts in 1918. Uh, He was known to have grown up in a rough-and-tumble South Boston. You know, he was a Southie. Uh, He didn't talk much about his past, though, according to his colleagues and friends in the comics industry, so we don't actually know a whole lot about his early life. But we do know that he came to work for the Harry A. Chesler Studios sometime around 1940. Uh, The Chesler Group provided comics to MLJ, that was pre-Archie Comics, uh, and Novelty Press and Lev Gleason Publications. And, of course, this is the golden age when comics were packaged by studios that were more or less sweatshops of uh, people cranking pages and, you know, pass the pencil page to the inker, pass it to the letterer, etc., like that. So, uh, uh, Leverett Stone Gleason, that's the uh, fella for whom Lev Gleason Publications is named, he was also born 1918. He was originally a salesman for Eastern Color Printing. Uh, they would print that very first comic book called Famous Funnies in 1933. Leverett founded Lev Gleason Publications in 1939. He purchased two characters from a failed publisher. Uh, I don't know what the publisher was, but the characters were Silver Streak, created by Joe Simon and Jack Binder, and Daredevil. That's the original two-toned Golden Age Daredevil. That was the sole creation of Jack Binder, but uh, once Lev Gleason got his hands on him, Jack Cole would spruce him up a bit and is generally considered his... uh, co-creator or his rebooter or whatever you want to call it. Jack Cole gave him a little more panache. Uh, one of my favorite things, though, Daredevil's breakout comic book, incidentally, was Daredevil Battles Hitler. That came out uh, number one. Also, there was no number two. Uh, July 1941. It's free to read online, and it's one of the weirdest revenge fantasies I've ever seen. Uh, it's also been reprinted uh, in some collections. You can find it. It's not hard. It's very... Racist by today's standards, but also very uh, telling of the uh, some American sentiment right right before we entered the war World War II. So uh, Lev Gleason hired two editors in 1941. That was Charles Byro and Bob Wood. Uh, in an unprecedented move, never before done, he engaged both men in a profit sharing program and allowed them to have their names on the covers of the books that they edited. Uh, Furthermore, Gleason expected them to come up with new titles. This would increase the profits in which they all shared. This was obviously incentivized by, you know, giving them a piece of the pie. So together, Byron Wood came up with the concept to publish true crime stories 
primarily about gangsters under the title Crime Does Not Pay. And that was not an original title, that was actually the title of a bunch of shorts from the 30s, but that's for a day that we actually talk about the comic and not uh, specifically about Bob Wood. Uh, pardon me. Had a little, little whistle wetter. Uh, now, they were up front in their pitch to Left Gleason. These magazines w- were meant to target adults. And uh, this would be the first American comics publisher to ever do that. Whether these comics wound up in the hands of adults primarily, that's a matter of conjecture. Uh, Charles Byro is reputed to have been inspired by a meeting with a kidnapper and a pimp one night in a bar. Apparently a man came to him and and asked if he would have sex with his uh, girlfriend, but that guy wanted to watch. Uh, Charles Byro turned him down and found out weeks later that that girl had been his, like, sex slave, came out in the news. But that story actually is probably not true, because Charles Byro was not really the kind of guy to hang out in a bar where a pimp is going to ask him... Uh, if you if he'll have sex with his uh, prostitute, he was really a morally righteous kind of upstanding kind of guy. Bob Wood, on the other hand, was exactly the type of guy to hang out in those dive bars where pimps and murderers hang out, and illegal gambling takes place. Especially uh, at this point, he had a the beginnings of a pretty bad drinking problem, and was definitely known to play uh, play the uh, gambling, play the dice, roll the dice more than. Uh, Others would. So, Crime Does Not Pay took over the numbering of Silver Street Comics with issue 22 that was covered dated July 1942. The initial issue sold approximately 200,000 copies, which is a pretty good number uh, for that time, or even for now, they would love to get that number. But by the end of World War II, the title was selling 800,000 copies per issue. Uh, Point is, uh, don't forget they had the profit sharing. Uh, Lev Gleason, Charles Byro, and more importantly for our story, Bob Wood, were getting very wealthy from this venture, all three of them. Uh, when World War II ended in 1947, big changes were afoot all across America and throughout the world. But we're interested in New York City at this time. So I want you to think about this now. Uh, Bob Wood, living in New York City, pockets fat with cash, making a living writing, actually drawing about gangsters and a little bit of writing, but mostly drawing these gangster stories. And, and if you have time, I implore you to go online. There are uh, issues of Crime Does Not Pay that are free to read. You have to see them, and you start to understand, for one thing, why they were sort of targeted to adults. They're not really, um, they don't look like kids' comics. But also, um, they're very graphic, and you can just picture the people drawing them you know, in this case, Bob Wood, he's having a good time with it. You know what I mean? Now, post-World War II, New York City is really much romanticized. Uh, America was really prosperous at the time. People were having families, doing a lot of screwing. And the segregation meant that upstanding white people didn't have to mingle with the darkies. So, it, like, Times Square, New York, was, back then was considered the Great White Way. It was all... Lights and, you know, carousing and drinking. And there's even stories, you know, they people would be out till 2, 3 in the morning, drunk and never worrying about, you know, anything happening to them. It was just not that kind of a city. It was essentially a uh, miniature police state. So this was also the beginning of white flight, uh, which also helped uh, to give the cops uh, less to do, I guess. Uh, this was the tendency for white residents of American cities to move to the suburbs. Uh, many of which were built specifically to house those post-war veterans and their families in, New- in Long Island, 
what's considered the first suburban development, Levittown, was built specifically for post-war veterans to spend their uh, housing stipend. Their, you know, you get some sort of a housing loan when you leave the uh, military. I'm sure some of you know a lot more about that than me. And now in Manhattan, this was also coupled with a massive urban renewal. Uh, indeed, when you think of Manhattan today, the glass and steel skyscrapers that dominate midtown Manhattan, uh, that just uh, that make up the entire skyline and make buildings like uh, the Empire State Building almost anachronistic, they were all built during this period in about 10 years. From about 47 to about 59, they all, they all, it, it all happened then. Uh, slums were cleared out to make way for these new buildings, uh, as well as housing developments, projects, housing projects, uh, mostly on the east side of Manhattan. Uh, Lincoln Center, for example, that's the uh, Arts Center on Columbus Avenue between 62nd and 65th Streets. Uh, that was once a massive, uh, you know, low-income you know, place to live. That was uh, actually people who had been cleared out of where Central Park is now had moved over there, and then uh, the uh, city planning commissioner, Robert Moses, cleared them out of there to build, to build Lincoln Center. Now what happens is when you displace these people, they don't evaporate, and uh, it kind of created a, a situation where suddenly, you know, low-income people had were like rubbing elbows with the wealthiest people and uh, middle-class people throughout New York. Uh, while there was a veneer of progress and elation throughout New York City, uh, mostly through, you know, Life Magazine and other, like, just really pro-New York publications, it was really just a time that New York City was seen as, like, the uh, place to be. There was a real undercurrent of vice also. Um, like I say, we get these, these less savory elements were released into polite society. It kind of put... Uh, middle-class people in proximity of drug dealers in a way that had never happened before, uh, and pimps as well. And so living in the suburbs, okay, a guy living there, working in Manhattan, it allowed these guys to have double lives, and it created this need for this underworld to exist in Manhattan, uh, this, this, these nightclubs and this world of, like, mistresses, and basically the kind of thing you see in that show Mad Men uh, really was this condition created that possibility. Uh, it was really unique. And I, it didn't just happen in New York, but it definitely did happen in New York, without a doubt. Um, this was the golden age of New York City nightlife. There were high-class clubs like the Copacabana and the Stork Club, ruling for middle class and upper crust. They, those were mostly around Midtown. Uh, the less well-to-do attended seedier establishments downtown. Uh, Dixieland joints like Central Plaza Casino. That was a second-floor dive with sawdust on the floor all the way over on 2nd Avenue on the Lower East Side. Uh, Bob Wood wasn't married, and he lived in New York City and was pretty wealthy, and this was the world he chose to inhabit. Uh, in a sense, he could have gone either way, but if he didn't have a family in the suburbs, uh, this lifestyle opened itself to him as just a way to be, you know, 24-7. So back over to Crime Does Not Pay. That's still coming out, let's not forget it. By 1948, sales reached 1 million copies per issue. And uh, Charles and Bob added the claim, more than 5 million readers monthly to the cover. This reference to the pass-along effect of comics 
uh, circulation, which actually might not have been far off because comics were very commonly just kind of passed around back then. It was doing so well that the same guy started a companion magazine called Crime and Punishment, which ran from 1948 until 1954. It was really essentially the same exact thing, except more focus on the police officers and the gangsters. It was more on the crime not paying, less on the uh, you know criminals living a lavish lifestyle. Indeed, to show the difference, the host for Crime and Punishment was the ghost of a policeman killed in the line of duty, as opposed to Crime Does Not Pay's Mr. Crime, who is uh, a little more difficult to explain. It's hard to say whether he's for or against crime. Sometimes he seems to cause crimes. you got to see it to believe it, folks. I'm telling you. Uh, go check these out online. They're, they're really interesting and really important to comic book history. Uh, beginning in 1947, Crime Does Not Pay attracted imitators from other publishers, a lot of them. Uh, True Crime Comics was designed and edited by Plastic Man creator Jack Cole, also did Police Comics, which would eventually be uh, where Plastic Man debuted. Headline Comics and Justice Traps the Guilty by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby for their prize comics imprint. Real Clue Comics for Hillman Periodicals, that was also done by Simon and Kirby because they had a real carte blanche through the uh, late 40s, early 50s. EC Comics published Crime Patrol, Crime Suspense Stories, and Shock Suspense Stories. The latter was more went increasingly towards science fiction uh, as the 1950s went on. Uh, pardon me. Um, and as uh, time went on, other titles were Famous Crimes, Crimes by Women, Penalty! Exclamation point. True Crime, All True Crime, Crime Cases, and Crime Can't Win. And that really is just a few of them. There were probably two, three dozen more uh, over time that maybe had one or two issues, but they were there. Uh, but then, of course, came Dr. Frederick Wortham and Seduction of the Innocent in 1954 and the Committee on Juvenile Delinquency led by Senator Estes Kefauver the following year. Of course, we went over this in our series on the Comics Code Authority. That's uh, the first five episodes of Weird Comics History. You can go find that in the archives. For this, for our purposes, it's worth saying that Wortham, he called all comics, even horror and romance comics, crime comics, and that everything they did was criminal. Uh, it, it definitely, though, zeroing in on a crime that does not pay and books like it, because one of their big problems with these comics is that the word crime was so prominent on the cover as if that alone would be enough to get someone to commit a crime. Uh, as we know, that led to the creation of the Comics Code Authority in 1955, and that effectively removed Crime Does Not Pay and comics like it from circulation. Uh, Crime Does Not Pay burped out a few sanitized issues before finally ending publication with its last issue, number 147, that had a July 1955 cover date. Uh, ostensibly, it's weird because the CCA did ban the word crime from the titles of comic books. But I think Lev Gleason and his friends, they got around this by changing the logo so the word crime was the same size as the words does not pay. So it was no longer crime does not pay. It was crime does not pay. I think, I, I don't know, I, I feel that, uh, I have no idea. Maybe they made a deal that they would keep that title, got grandfathered in. I'm not sure. Whatever it was, though, they folded uh, the Lev Gleason Publishing itself folded in 1956, the next year, leaving Lev Gleason somewhat adrift 
Uh, we may get back to him. One day I want to do an issue of Crime Does Not Pay for Cosmic Treadmill, and that will deal more with Lev Gleason, uh, the man. <clears throat> Charles Byro found work later writing for television, so he actually made good with uh, his self. Bob, his trajectory went differently. He found work where he could get it. At this time, Bob Wood's alcoholism really deepened. Uh, he found work drawing sleazy, pornographic comic pages, pinups, really, that could be purchased under the counter in Times Square newsstands or passed around billiards halls. These weren't really comics, though. They were just still, Im- still images of violence, sex, and drug abuse with no real narrative between them. They weren't really Tijuana Bibles. For one thing, they weren't at the same format. They were more of like a, a sheet of 8.5 by 11 folded in half. But uh, they also didn't have, there was no story. It was just a picture of a woman getting whipped would be the uh, the joy of it. Now, this whole part, and as I've looked uh, into my research, this is pretty much the uh, story. This is the source from whence everyone gets this information about Bob Wood. It's from Joe and Jim's, Jim Simon's uh, book, The Comic Book Maper, Maker's. Uh, came out from Vanguard Press in 2003. I've uh, rejiggered it a little bit for clarity, but it's pretty much word for word right from that book. So, according to testimony on August 27, 1958, a cab driver named Paul Feingold picked up a disheveled and obviously agitated Wood in New York's Swank Gramercy Park neighborhood. Wood himself helped, uh, helped himself into the back seat and told the driver, I'm in terrible trouble. I'm going to get a couple of hours sleep and jump in the river. In an offhand way, Feingold asked Wood if he'd killed anybody, and the former purveyor of uniquely American pulp replied, Yes, I killed a woman who was giving me a bad time in room 91 of the Irving Hotel. Why don't you call someone in a newspaper and make yourself a few dollars? After dropping Wood off in Greenwich Village at the Regina Hotel, Feingold located a police officer operating out of the East 22nd Street Station. Then, Feingold and the officer questioned the manager of the Regina, only to find out that Wood had signed under the false name of Roger Turner. The manager recalled how violently Wood's hands had shook, and when the police found bloodied clothing in Wood-slash-Turner's room in the Regina, they figured they had a case, and uh, they were right. When they entered room 91 of the Irving Hotel, they found not only a small army of empty, empty whiskey bottles, but they also the battered body of a woman in a blood-drenched negligee. As Wood revealed more of his story, it was discovered that he and the woman, a divorcee who seemed to share Wood's passion for spirits, had spent an 11-day bender together at the Irving. The couple spent most of their time drinking, making love, and fatefully arguing. It was one such argument that led Wood to beat the woman to death with an electronic iron, a gruesome murder that... Could have been one of Bob Wood's drawings in an issue of Crime Does Not Pay. After pleading guilty, Wood was only charged with first-degree manslaughter. The presiding judge blamed alcohol for Wood's crime and thus spared the fallen artist from a life sentence. Unfortunately, this good luck would run out. After serving three years in prison, Wood's murdered body was found on the New Jersey Turnpike the year after its release, his release. He'd run up a bill while in Austin in prison that would be sing-sing to most of us, and he was forced to take an alternate option when he couldn't pay up. Bob Wood was murdered in 1962 in New Jersey. 
And that's the story of Bob Wood, folks. Uh, not a happy ending, but I think uh, still interesting in the context of the comics that he worked on and uh, New York City of the time and the realities of a very dark undercurrent. Um, where he was caught, Gramercy Park is the most, maybe one of the most exclusive parts of Manhattan. There's actually a private park uh, that is available by key entry only to people that live in homes that ring the park. And that's a true story, folks. You can go check it out right there on uh, Gramercy and Irving Place. It's a cool thing to walk around, but you can't get in there. And I warn you, if you do try to sneak in there, you also need the key to get out. It's important to know. There's no push bar. Once you're in, you you could be trapped in there for good. Anyway, uh, so that's that's all about Bob Wood. I hope you guys enjoyed that little story. Maybe it was a little too chilling. Try to pick something a little more lighthearted in a couple of weeks. Uh, but that's uh, definitely part of my, uh, you know, style or whatever. So uh, if you have any comments, questions, or you want to talk about how crappy my voice was this time, definitely write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. We do have a Patreon at, at uh, patreon.com slash Chris and Reggie. If you like what we're doing, maybe toss us a couple of bucks. I can get a uh, some throat spray. That would be a help. Uh, you can find us on Twitter or Instagram at uh, Cosmic T Mill, on Facebook at Cosmic T Mill History. I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie, and uh, our show site is Weird Comics History at blog.blogspot.com. And that really is the best place to go find all of our shows, and uh, if you want to go through them, because the Podbean is the feed is a mess now. So anyway, thanks a lot for listening, everybody. I hope all of you. Have a wonderful rest of your days, and I hope the rest of your lives are a lot better than Bob Woods. Take care. Hey there, Mr. Build a Fence around your sister. It's the, the boys' night out. Hey there, Buster. It's the engines after Custer. It's the, the boys' night out. They're out to do the town, and before they're through, it's bound to be likened to The night they lost the Titanic And the Wall Street to panic What they're seeking is a little cheek to cheeking It's the, the boys' night out And that moon's about as big as a honeydew It's the boys' night out And they're so romantic